This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Okay, good. So we're holding here in the middle of chapter 4, and I um, think that we're holding over here by 10. Yud. It's Perik Dalit, and it's Yud. So, um, he, he was in the middle of the sky. Basically, what he did was in, in three and a half or four, he discussed all of the. Um, all, everything that's in this world and understanding what it's composed of and so on. And bearing in mind, in the Rambam's understanding, there was no demarcation between a physical world and a spiritual world. It's all the, the very spiritual world, the stars and sun and moon and our physical world is one continuum. Okay, ten, yud. Everything I've discussed in this chapter is like a drop in the bucket. They're deep. They're nowhere as deep as the things I discussed in the first two chapters, which are purely theological. And whatever I've discussed in this third and fourth chapter is called my sabrations. The Chachamim taught us that you can't teach this publicly. That you teach it to one person only. Let's, let's discuss what he's talking about, and that way we'll understand the words he's using. Our earliest... Where, what's, where is Jewish mysticism come from? Where is it Where is it discussed? What's our earliest source? So there's two early sources. The earliest source is Ezekiel. In the first chapter, where he says the heavens opened up and I saw all sorts of angels and stuff. So, so, so that's where the first place that we, we, we recognize a metaphysical component of Judaism. The second place is a Mishnah in Chagiga. That's in the Talmud. And it says like this. You can't teach laws of marriage and divorce to three students. It has to be less than three students. Why? Because whenever you're teaching to three people, you might be talking to one student, and the other two are schmoozing. And they're going to mess up on it. They're going to hear a heifer with a heifer ear what it is exactly that you said. And and what will happen in the end is they'll make a mistake on these laws. These laws about divorce and marriage are very complicated. They create tremendous um, difficulties uh, um, afterwards. If a child is born when his mother is not properly divorced, terrible thing. And therefore, we want people to be focused. I guess this is before people could text. And even when you talk to one person, you're not sure that, that you have his attention. So, so um, it, it says three people. Then it says, and you don't teach ma'asabracious. Ma'asabracious means the, the, the portion dealing with creation to two people. Because they're afraid that they won't pay attention. You know, you're talking to one and the other one is half spaced out. These are very delicate things. And 
and they don't, and therefore you can't speak to two people. And it says, and not even to one person can you teach the story about the chariot, the discussion about the chariot in Ezekiel. That's the end of the mission. So the Gemara says, so, so the Gemara says, well, if you can't teach it to one person, how do you have to teach it? So it says, well, if he's wise and understands from himself, you give him over the chapter outlines, the chapter headings. That's the end of the Gemara. So there are two points. First of all, there are two things that are called mystical. One is the activities of creation, and one is the activities of the chariot. What exactly are we talking about? Two, what does it mean you give it to a wise person that understands himself? You give him chapter headings. Why are you so coy about it? You either teach him or don't teach him. Like, what's this game over here? That's the, that's the, the two points to ponder. So, the, by and large, the two levels of mysticism, most have, have been interpreted as being two levels of mysticism. The Rambam seems to imply that the first one about creation is what we would call today natural sciences, which begs the question, why would natural science be a discipline that's theological and restricted to one at a time? I mean, you're talking about biology and chemistry and physics and earth sciences and stuff like that. I mean, so what? That's a problem with the way Maimonides, with the way Rambam learns it. The explanation given for it would be as follows. The Rand is the one who gives this explanation. It means there's a continuum. The world is built in a way that nature reflects some deeper truths. For instance, um, the world is divided between forces that attract like gravity and forces that blow apart such as um, different types of um, almost most other most other energies tend to drive things apart rather than pull them together that says something there's underpinning in the world of two great forces one force depends on the size of something one force depends on the energy in it these are things that are really a sort of almost stand-ins for deeper points. So when you deal with creation on a sort of metaphysical way, you can actually discern a lot from it. We're not talking about the mechanics as given in science. Science deals with the mechanics of how does the system work. And there's a deeper way to say what does it reflect about it. The symmetry in a person is right and left. There's, there's something to that. Um, the fact that almost every organ is symmetrical and has doubles except for the brain, except for the mouth. And it says something about it. Um, all of these things um, where, where as pure science tries to derive these things from evolution, we see it from a standpoint of reflecting some deeper truths. So, so it, it, the, the explanation the Ran gives in the Rambam is Masa Bracious, which is natural sciences, 
doesn't mean natural sciences as an end to itself, but as some reflection of higher truths. The Greeks actually saw it that way. The Greeks said planets go around in a circle because circles are natural. The, the, it's graceful. Planets ought to be graceful. It's a type of logic that we have a hard time today, and we understand it today that both are true. There is going to be an internal natural mechanism that will explain why a planet is an ellipse, whether it's gravity, whether it's space-time, however you want to deal with it, that's going to be fine. And there's an inner truth that circular motion seems to be some sort of, um, you know, circles seem to be some sort of um, pervading form that, that somehow seems to pervade the universe. Okay. What about the, so Yudal? He's going to say eleven. Uma bein inya ma'isim rekava mesubrachus. What's the difference? She inya ma'isim rekava after le'echad endoshabo. The stuff dealing with the chariot, we can't even teach it to one person. Ale imkein ayachacham umeven midaytoi noisim rashaprakim. Only somebody who's wise and understands himself, we give him over the chapter headings. The inya ma'isubrachus. We teach it to one person. We teach him as much as he could understand. So you teach one person at a time. You get a sense of what is it that he can understand. And that's how much you teach. And why not more? Why don't you teach it publicly? Because people, most people, do not have the sense, the breadth of understanding to, to, to be able to understand it the way it really is. I, I want to spend some time on this point and, and get some sense of it. And again, today is especially a suspicious day. It's like Boma, is day. He was the one who is the main teacher of, of, of Jewish mysticism. Why is it not... What's the problem of making it public? What's the problem of teaching it publicly and so on? So one point is that it shows a certain lack of appreciation for how elevated of a topic you're teaching. When you teach things to people who don't understand it, it's like giving a little kid a diamond ring to play with. The problem is not only he might lose it, but there's a certain sense of cheapening it. Hey, this is something that people work a lifetime to earn. It, it shouldn't be available for a child to use as, 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 as a little trinket. By making something into a trinket, it's, it's lacking... You're showing a disrespect for it. I'm teaching you something that's very profound and very deep. And if I and if I give it over to people that are clueless and they're just mouthing words, then isn't it cheapening or degrading the chachma? It it was seen as being a way of valuing that you don't that that you give it only to people who are intelligent enough to understand. So just like in the same sense, private information about my life. Not things that are detrimental to me, but things that are very personal. I tell it to people only that I think are close to me. What's the problem with being public about it? That's something I'm ashamed of, and it's not something that might come back to, to, to harm me. So what is, but, but we don't find it very, very positive in telling people. I remember I was once sitting on a bus in Israel, going from Jerusalem to Bnei Brak. It's an hour ride, and in the back of me, 
in front of me, a lady, there's a lady sitting, empty seat next to her, and like the last minute, this a lady comes running off the bus, carrying like a gown for a wedding and something else, and just barely made it, and really hot summer day, and plops into the seat next to her. It's kind of very strange, like, you know, she sits down, and she starts talking to the woman next to her, in front of me. And she's a woman with like a shrill voice, it's sort of very irritating, loud voice. And within that hour, we knew who she had been married to, why she was divorced, what are the problems still available, and so on and so forth. And and it was, you know, and it's very funny, the bus driver was sitting here, they were the next seat next to it, and I was behind. And I remember at the end of the trip, the bus driver says in a loud voice, I have the biggest headache I've ever had in my life. And the lady, so she says, oh, he says, can I get you some aspirin Advil? Like he says, it's you, lady. It's, it's got, you know, and she got oh, I said, that's, that's such a nasty thing. But I'm sitting and thinking, here's a person that has no problem getting undressed in, in a room of strangers. Nothing, is there anything about the information that could damage? I don't think, I don't think there was anything that way. But where is the dignity of the information? Where's the, where's that sense of, these are very, very, this is, this is my core thing. Why would I tell it to a lady sitting next to me who, who I don't know and, and just pour everything out? I, 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 I could guess why, uh, but, but, but I was just saying the, the sense of we're talking about the most precious points in Torah, why spill it to an audience of people who don't get it, don't understand it, don't have relationship? That's one way of looking at it, and that, that is definitely appropriate. There's a second element which which is very very important. Why we and, and why why Kabbalah has been always kept under wraps. When we deal with Torah itself, it's very simple. This is a chauffeur. These are the laws of a chauffeur. This is what you need to do with it. They're not misleading in any sense of the word. When you start talking about more theological topics, about about how God does things, we're caught in a terrible conundrum. We, we can't describe God, even his activities, of saying God was happy or God was sad. If it's taken literally, it's wrong. It's it's close to being idol worship. On the other hand, if I don't use any words, I can't describe anything to you. So what I'm doing is. I'm using words and you need to discard every word and just take out the sense you get from the word. Let me give an example of, of, of two disciplines and, and we'll get a good sense of the difference. If I have, if I'm teaching mechanics, car mechanics, if I'm teaching a guy how to be a car mechanic, I should be able to explain every last detail. Which widget gets connected to which widget, and how it gets connected, and how it stays together, and what each piece does. I should be able, if I'm articulate and structured enough, I should be able to describe the car functioning from A to Z. From the minute the gas goes into the tank to when the wheels do spinning. On the other hand, let's say I'm teaching art appreciation or music appreciation in school. So I can't start by saying music and art are indescribable. 
and that's it. You know, the course is over. Um, I would not, unless I'm tenured, I, I wouldn't be able to get away with that. I, 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 I'm not going to be able to draw a salary on that one. I might attract a lot of students to that course, but I don't think I could get away with that. So what do I do? On the other hand, and music and art cannot be described in the same in the same with the same finality or definitiveness that calm, a car can be described. Absolutely not. So what I'm trying to do is, by I, I believe that you have an innate sense of the aesthetic, music, art, whatever it is. I believe that if I awaken it, if I massage that, I'm going to awaken that sense in you and you'll start getting it. So I, I, we talk about color and contrast, and we talk about symmetry, and we talk about perspective, and, 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 and we outline different elements of it, and for the guy who has it in him, at some point he gets it, and he walks into, and he sees the painting, and he has a feel for it, and he says, no, yes, it should have been shifted, should have been seen from this way, that way, and, 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 you, and you get a sense that his sense the aesthetic has been awakened, but the real thing itself I can't describe. So if I'm to ask myself, how do I deal with, how do I teach art and music? The answer is, I need to pick a person who I feel has an inner sense for it. I need to direct him in a way that will show him some of the some of the mahalchem of it, some of the lines of it, and 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 he'll get a feel for it. That I think is the same thing here. At the end of the day, this part of this 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 part of Torah does not have words that fit it snugly. When I talk about tefillin, as holy as tefillin are, the laws of tefillin have clear words. There's the skin, the hide it's made from, the animal, the color, the size, the shape, the structure of it. Those things are real. When I talk about God and any any attributes of how God interacts with us, we're talking about really the space between the words. We're talking about the idea, the feeling that gets conveyed between those words and therefore A, I, I should not do it for the public. Most people are too obtuse. They don't have a sense of metaphor and they will take it literally. That's dangerous. And the person that I could possibly teach is someone that when I give him the outline he can, he can his sense can fill in the, 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 the middle. Um, so that's why he says people don't have a broad enough mind to understand these things. And therefore it's wrong to teach them because basically you're misleading them. Someone who's fixed and he takes these things literally is, is, is turning God into idol. Yud Beis, 12. When a person looks into these things, and, and now the Rambam says the point of knowledge in general, of all of these types of knowledge is that as, as a person looks into these things, he, he begins to, you know, the more and more you see the entirety of the system, I remember in 1968, 
1966, they had what was called the World's Fair in New York. And they, I don't think they have them anymore. I, don't, I haven't heard of it. But in those days, every four years, they'd have in another major city in the world, they would have a um, like an exposition of all sorts of new things and so on and so forth. That was kind of a... Uh, that was what, what used to happen. They still have them. I, I, I went yeah? to the Fukuoka Japan when I was in Station Korea. Okay, just right. What? Okay, so that could be. So, so, so that's in, in Japan. Um, today, they, they, then they had a mini one in Montreal, in 68, Expo 68, and we went there also. And I remember they had the Czech Pavilion, and Czechoslovakia in those days was communist, but Czech were always very, very good at. at they were, they were like Germany, mechanical things, um, things that required a lot of chachma mechanics and law and hard work and, and, and craftsmen. And and they had a watchmaker had made this huge. It was a table as big as I don't know maybe the length of the room over here, and it had an entire feudal town and one mechanism. And many sub-mechanisms. Mechanism, I mean, the type of stuff you wind up, like a grandfather clock. And as the things were ticking, this farmer was going out to work. The knight was going out to battle. The, 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 the miller was milling his stuff. And it worked on a clock. And every sub-mechanism worked in a way where, where it timed accurately. So the farmer would be going out at 5 in the morning to work his field. And at 6 in the morning, the knight would and all the pieces ticked together and as you saw each piece was very neat but then when you tried to think of the whole system together it blew your mind and 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 um, you know today we do the computer shit it's not it's not difficult in those days it was all done with mechanism it was it was like cogs and wheels and cogs and wheels it, it really really was amazing so so when you take a look around and you get a sense of all of it the year you perceives God's wisdom in all the beings. It, it, it increases your love for God. Your soul thirsts and your flesh longs. You're attracted to God because for the person whose who's inside is, is wisdom and knowledge, the understanding of it is extraordinary. That's one. And the other hand, um, you also are all of a sudden overwhelmed with awe. It's just like when you meet somebody who's this brilliant genius, and, and you're very attractive. Wow, this guy's awesome. And as he's sitting with him, you say, oh my gosh, who am I? It's, it's like, it, it, it gives you both, it, 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 it turns attraction, and it also kind of makes you very, very, um, it makes you feel humble. So your reaction to God as you take in the world and, in, and, and everything with it is on the one hand a tremendous attraction 
on the other hand, you feel humble extremely. I, 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 I want to add a point that I think is, is very significant. We speak about the wisdom of Torah vis-a-vis the, the secular wisdom. So obviously these are two, they deal with two different subject matters. One deals with what's around you, and one deals with what's the purpose of everything, and what's right, what's wrong. I'm not comparing apples and oranges. But there's one area that is a crucial difference. In the secular world, in the secular world I mean in the full sense of a secular world, the more you know and understand, the more you ought to feel, um, you ought to feel proud and haughty. Um, because the more I know, the more I have, the more I understand, the more I am master of things. If I know how a river courses, I know how to harness the river. If I know how the sun radiates, I can harness the power, I can, I can filter out the rays. The more I know, the greater of a master I am, and arrogance is a natural byproduct of knowledge. That's, that's the reality. From a religious point of view, I look at nature as coming from someplace. So, so for instance, let's say I crack a computer program that's really very difficult, that's incredibly difficult, I cracked it, I say to myself, wow, I'm proud of myself, but oh my gosh, who's the guy that makes these programs? This guy is, is absolutely overwhelms me, he's, he's really extraordinary. So the, the, from a Torah perspective, as I'm learning and understanding more and more, I'm more and more humble. And that's, and that's what happens is you get over, you get filled with an awe when you compare yourself. When you think about angels being entirely spiritual beings and you being just a flesh and blood. And you see yourself as being empty, filled with nothing. It's an incredible, I, I mean, it's an incredible emotional um, outcome that, that you don't find in any other way of looking at things. The Rambam was brilliant. The Rambam was a know-it-all. The Rambam was a polymath. He, he, he knew all st- everything that was available to know, he knew. And the Rambam says, when I finish, when I finish taking stock of what I know, my reaction is, so I am nothing. The world is so big, so immense, so much wisdom in the world, the more I know, the less I think of myself. Because it came from someplace, and I am not it. So, so, so it's incredible how the sense of the wisdom and my personality go hand in hand in a way that only Torah does. Um, our best proof is Moses is the one who seemed to have known all of Torah. And the Torah says he is the humblest of people. So the humility, it's not just, uh, um, it just happens to be synchronized well with it. Humility is, is the product of the knowledge and vice versa. Humility is what gives you the chance to know and to understand. Okay, finally, the last, the last paragraph, 13, Yud Gimel. Vinyane Abba Prakim Elo Shabhamitz Elo Heim Shachachamim Arishonim Karnas of Pardes. Moshe Omer Arbanusul the 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 Chachamim called the the Talmud calls these chapters Pardes. In other words, Pardes is the orchard, and all of these wisdoms are called in the Talmud an uh, orchard zone. I, I want to discuss this also. 
Why is it called an orchard? It's something which is okay. You know, I mean, it's it's a nice, it's a it's a nice, it's a pleasant description. But why an orchard? So I I, wa- I want to describe what the metaphor of an orchard is. In the old days, in a, in a big sweep, the, the human staple, what you ate to keep you alive and healthy and full, was grain. We're coming back to it now, and now everybody is back into grain again. But in the old days, before they invented meats and cheeses and everything else, the staple was grain. Bread is, is that which kills you, and, and, and so on. So you have, so, so, so a field of wheat is seen as life's necessities, and as the stuff that fills your tummy and, and, and gives you what you need to live on. When people needed to eat something that, for, for the enjoyment, it was fruits. Fruits were sweet. They were they were not considered necessities. They were as, so 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 apples and figs and dates were the stuff that you ate as pleasure. When you walk into a a field of wheat, you get hot sun close crops that need work, sweat, with a lot of weeds growing and stuff like that. When you walk into an orchard, you have trees, shade, not much work really to be done, it, 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 it grows always every year, it, it's, 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 um, you just pick the fruit. So the world is divided into necessity, which includes sweat, hard work, toil, and you only do it because you have to, and pleasure of, of the sense of sort of a, a Garden of Eden. This part of Torah, where you're learning it for the pleasure of what you sense, is this Garden of Eden of fruits, of, of, of fruits. So there's a part of Torah which is necessity. Okay, how do I make film? What bracha do I make on them? When do I wear them? When don't I wear them? And so on and so forth. That, that's, bread, that's bread. But then there's a part of Torah where the wisdom itself is the pleasure. The pleasure is inherent in it, and that's why this is called parties. And it says, um, it, it says over there that four people entered this parties, this part of Torah. Three of them did not suffer a, a, a good a good end, and only one did. It says four went in. One of them became a heretic, and that was Acher. One of them went crazy, and that was Benzoma, who, who went crazy. One of them died young, and only Rabbi Kiva, who went in and went out without any problems. In other words, it's like it was seen, it's, it's, it's not something that's healthy for you to eat unless your stomach has been filled first. And that's what he says here. Um, even though they were great and wise people, not all of them could possibly learn and understand it. says, I say, You need to fill yourself up with bread and meat. To know what's right and what's wrong, technically, um, let's give, let's use this metaphor also. 
when a person eats, starts by eating dessert, you're, you're very hungry and you run to eat the mousse and the pies and the sweet stuff, you'll probably throw it up. Or, or you'll be full but not satisfied. It's true in wisdom and knowledge. There's like bread and butter. This is, this stuff, Talmud fills you with stuff that is disciplined. What does it say? What's the reason? What are the contradictions? Questions, answers. The fact that you're dealing with facts, it's like you ever see people who, who take, you have disciplines like science and philosophy. The advantage of science is that it's fact-based and logic-based. And you can't just describe your, your, what you think is right. You need to stick to facts and to practical things. Um, when you're talking about philosophy, so science is fact-based, but it's dry. There's no meaning in science, it is what it is. And basically pure science is data and testing theories, and either they work to fit that or don't work to fit that, and that's it. But some deeper sense of things, you don't have in it. On the other hand, people are philosophy majors with no science or math background. A lot of them talk and talk and they, they sort of have these wispy ideas. But you got a sense nothing's sitting on anything on any solid bed. It's, it's floating. It's like a cloud. It's, and not the computing type of cloud. It's, it's the real cloud. It's kind of nothing solid. When a person starts with Torah with the parts that are this mystical part, there's a floating sense to it. There's no real sense of something, of reality. So he says, um, therefore you need to fill some of bread meat. And this bread meat is to know the dry parts of the Torah. It says that there's a passage in the Talmud that these halachas are really small things. These are really things that are um, not big things. Whereas the mysticism is big things. Still, it's, it's just like when you eat when you eat a great meal in a restaurant, and and you go back home and you rave about the dessert, and you say the dessert was just something out of this world. But even though that that's true, you don't start the meal with that dessert. And if you did, you wouldn't have that feeling. So the mystical parts of Torah might be the parts that are the most enchanting and the parts that give you the greatest amount of, um, of, of, of satisfaction and connection, but it's only because it sits on a bedrock of solidity. It sits on something which is bread and meat. Um, a second, a second aspect of it is that this is the reality in our world. When we're speaking of the parts of Torah that deal with this world, we're talking about things that are here, that are real. There's, there's, there's tables and chairs and, 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 and clothing and sitzes and so on. It fits our world much better. When we're talking about mysticism, we're talking about things that are beyond our world, and, and, and therefore we're talking about things beyond. Third of all, the Ish Isha 
there's universality of the other parts of Torah that really are meaningful. The fact is, the rest of Torah is universal. You can teach them to adults, you can teach them to children, you can teach them to bright people, you can teach them to not bright people, you can teach them to broad-minded people, to narrow-minded people, it fits all. So basically the Rambam sums up with this, he sums up these four chapters and he says, I've, I've been discussing things here that are very unlike everything else I will give you in the other chapters. Um, they are the parts that are really referred to as being the cherry. Chachamim um, have called this Maisebracious, Maisebracava, and have severely restricted the teaching of it. And he poses a question. Well, since these things are described in the Talmud as being of greatest significance, these things are higher than the other things, why don't we go to them straight? I remember, I, I, I have a memory, a very strong memory. I, have a teach, I had a teacher, a math teacher in high school, who was absolutely brilliant, really a genius. The man was astounding. He was also old school. So I'm talking about the 60s. I had him probably in 67 as is my, I think we had him for algebra and geometry, 66, 67. The man was absolutely brilliant, the older person, and he was old school, real old school. Like nuts and bolts, no fancy terms, his vocabulary was limited. You don't know what you're talking about, and he had deadly aim with an eraser and chalk. And he, he had spent his lifetime finding the hardest problems to solve, and he had a collection of them. And they were amazing his problems. He, he really had, you know, an algebra, geometry, and um, that was him. And I remember one year there was a student who was kind of very weak, and he had gone to summer school to sort of um, bone up on his math. And he, um, and and the first day, so so he was a, the teacher was a kind of teacher who went through introductory material chapter like in about 10 minutes, you know, it was all nonsense. And then he said, okay, so we did it. And the kid raised something, well, what about infinity? Is that, some, is that a subset, is a whole set, something like that. It was a very new age type of, of, of math school that he went to. And the first question, the teacher kind of was grump something. And the second question, there was an eraser with chalk and said, you know, we don't talk nonsense. Our class is about myth, not about nonsense. And, and I remember the, the, you know, appreciating, I mean, this is like real. You, you really, really dealt with hard numbers. You either could prove it or you couldn't prove it. You couldn't substitute words for, for real things. So he says there are three reasons why this, about this discipline. First of all, yes, it's, it's the cherry on top, but it has to be on top. It has to sit on a bedrock of solidity, which is the laws and the Talmud that deals with the, 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 the straight affairs of the world. One. Two. He says um, this is also something that fits our setting. It's the Torah that deals with the reality that's real to us. We live in a world of things and physical things, and Torah describes these things, and that's why it's more natural fit for us. And, and that's why we, that's the advantage of this, that, that it is real in, in terms of our surroundings. And third of all, it's universal. When you get things right in, in, in regular Torah, you're right and anybody has access to it. 
The other stuff is something where you need to have very deep mind. And it's not something that's universal. It's not something you can teach to everybody and to anybody. And it needs to be restricted. So those are three reasons why he says, I'm leaving these chapters. I am not going to continue with these things because this this is something that needs to be the cherry on top. I needed to, I needed to give them as sort of introduction in a certain sense because they are descriptions of certain mitzvahs and so on. But they're not this is not what it's about. Which is it's very interesting in, in the in the guide of perplex, he does seem to indicate he does deal more with philosophy, but again, it's it's seen to him as being superior when everything else has been covered. We're going to skip the next two chapters. I'll just describe what the next two chapters are. Chapter five are laws dealing with when a Jew is supposed to give up his life. In in, in other words, at what times norm, the norm is that if it's life threatening, we are allowed to transgress mitzvahs. Uh, except for certain exceptions, he deals with those exceptions. Um, the Rambam feels that this is very, very fundamental mitzvahs, and these are things that are um, that are really something that are extremely, extremely significant things to know, and it's as fundamental as the rest of it. Um, the the, um, the there is one there is one law that is worth our times to to study, and I'll I'll read it. You don't have it, but I, I will read it for you just because I think it's important to know it. At the end of it, he says he, he talks about the mitzvah of giving up your life. That's called kiddush Hashem, and the prohibition against chil Hashem, which is to desecrate God's name. Normally, desecration of God's name and, and sanctification really hinges on those three great sins. But then he adds something else. Eleven. There are other things that are included in 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 in, in desecrating God's name, and that is that depends on the person. He says, if a person is great in Torah and renowned for his righteousness and saintliness. If he does things that allows people to cast aspersions on him, even though it's technically right, he's desecrated God's name. That's an, and that's a very powerful, powerful um, obligation. He says, even if they're not sins. For instance, if you buy something, if somebody who's a great rabbi buys something and doesn't pay for it immediately, and he has the money, and then and and then they ask for it and he puts it on credit. So it, it allows people to say, you know, he's not so honest, he didn't pay for it at the end. That's a problem. Or he's overly easy, laughing all the time, kind of frivolous. Or he spends time eating out. Or he doesn't speak with people nicely. He's not friendly, he's kind of angry, vengeful, argumentative person. And all these things. He says the level of it depends on the level of the person, of the wise person. The greater a person is, the more he's held in esteem, the more he needs to respond, his behavior needs to reflect it. 
And he says, on the other hand, someone who is careful about himself, if this if this person who's considered wise is wise, is cares, he talks with people nicely, he's involved with them, he greets them pleasantly, he doesn't allow himself to get baited, but he's able to absorb um, issues, he respects people even if they don't respect him, he deals honestly, does not spend much time um, eating out with plain people and you know spending time with them and partying with them. You see him usually sitting and studying Torah, and everything he does is done not by the letter of the law, but including the spirit of the law. As long as it's within normal bounds, he doesn't do things that are crazy or weird. And people respect him and like him and would like to emulate him. That's a Kiddush Hashem. In other words, when people through their actions inspires other people to act as he does, that's called sanctifying God's name. And this and the verse says about him, "You are my servant Israel that I'm proud of." In other words, when a person becomes a stepping stone for for drawing people to God's to God and His Word and His uh, and His commandments, that's called sanctifying His name. So it's very interesting. The parameters are a doing things right, doing things better than the letter of law, not allowing yourself situations that allows for some speculation as to are you doing right. Your interaction with people being pleasant, enjoyable, not doing things that look outlandish or crazy, all of those things go into a package of making the message that you carry attractive to people. That's called sanctifying God's name. That's the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6 he deals with more technical laws about erasing God's name and that's prohibited to erase God's name and so on and so forth. We'll skip that as well. We'll start next time, God willing, chapter 7, which deals with prophecy. Chapter 8 deals with Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy, with Moses' prophecy. Chapter 9 deals with the immutability of Torah, that Torah can never change. Chapter 10, he speaks about how we recognize a prophet and how we distinguish between genuine prophets and not genuine prophets. Those are the next chapters. So we'll hold it here. Um, I will not be here the next two Sundays. Um, 